How's it going, everyone? Welcome to Accessible Now. My name is Varun Tucker. This is a new podcast we're starting focused on making topics in science, policy, and education more fun and accessible for everyone. We feel that in today's day and age, people shy away from talking about these topics because they can often be divisive. And we kind of want to take the edge off of that. We're going to talk to some amazing experts, and then we're also going to break down those conversations in fun everyday conversations with our friends so that they can be more accessible for people. In our first episode, we're going to talk about solar power, which is a very important but also very uh, hard and complicated topic to understand. I'm going to talk to one of the nation's leading experts about the evolution of the solar industry over the last couple of decades. And then I'm going to break it down in a conversation with my buddy Dylan. We're really excited about this show. Uh, We want it to be a great public resource. Uh, So whether you're just curious about learning about new topics, or if you have a young kid in your life you'd like to learn and grow with, we really hope this can be a great resource for you. So uh, we're just going to jump right into it. And Dylan and I are going to introduce the the topic and our guest. So Dylan, uh, for this piece, I interviewed Julia Hamm, the CEO of the Smart Electric Power Alliance, also known as SEPA. Julia started with the organization pretty recently after she graduated from college back in 1999. And uh, after her first stint with the organization, she left for a little while and then came back and heralded the organization and in part the solar industry in America into a new era. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I, the interview got is really fascinating, Varun. Um, and I'm really excited about this topic you chose uh, solar power. Why? Why did you choose this first and foremost, Varun? There are renewable and non-renewable sources of power, and there's quite a few of them. But solar is pretty unique in that it's really democratizing the power system. And what I mean by that is people can relatively easily today generate their own power making their home into a basic power plant for itself. Uh, There's a lot of complexity that comes with that. And Julia and I talked about that a little bit. You know, it's decentralizing it, making it so that you can, you know, purchase or produce your power in a variety of different ways. Uh, And that's just really changing the nature of the power industry. Uh, And the utility sector is changing with it. So there's a lot going on there. And I think people hear about solar quite a lot, but don't really know that much about it and how the industry really started to come into its own in the last 10 to 15 years. And Julia was one of the uh, key people in the U.S. that helped make that happen. So that's why I was really excited to interview her. What about uh, reducing emissions? Uh, How does it compare to other sources of power? Right. So... Photovoltaic solar power does not have a combustion process like many other fossil fuel-based power systems. So there is no real emissions from solar. There are the life cycle, which is the, the emissions that come from potentially from producing the panels. But that's a one-time thing. And then after that, you're not emitting anything into the atmosphere. You're just producing powers using chemical reactions based on semiconductor material properties. Okay, so then if, if you're producing a solar panel, 
how long generally will that last, that one panel? Uh, that's a great question. Typical life cycle for panels is about 15 to 25 years. Um, that changes and varies depending on the quality of the panels, which affects price and output. So there's kind of like a grid where you can go from low price, lower lifespan, lower production quality to a higher cost, higher lifespan, higher production quality. And each of those, uh, you know, each of those different kinds of cell types along that kind of grid play different roles depending on the economy that they're a part of or the application. Well, it's quite fascinating, actually. So then... In relation to how solar was developed, I'm assuming that the lower quality and higher quality has a timeline as well, right? So it's not as linear as you would think. You know, so a lot of the initial applications for solar were very niche initially, you know, out of space or very remote areas where the power grid didn't reach. Uh, that needed power because the cost was so high, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. So since the 90s and and early 2000s, the industry has started to come into its own. And that has led to, you know, production of the gamut of production quality and and prices. So it's kind of like anything, any kind of common consumer good now, like the automobile, for instance, it might have been very expensive when it was first created, but now that the industry is mature, you see every kind of different automobile, you know, ranging from cheap, poor quality to very expensive, high quality. So then how did mass scale production happen in general? I mean, obviously you're saying the niche applications for space or like other remote areas in the wilderness or the desert mm-hmm. that... We, they used those originally, but then how, how did we come to have, you know, giant solar farms in California or um, other places like that? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dylan. So it's a confluence of factors. They are what we call early adopters, and Julia talks about that in the interview. Typically, early adopters were driven by environmental reasons. Also, from a technological standpoint, there are inherent advantages to having a distributed power system as opposed to the traditional centralized large power plants. Uh, So it's that combination of the environmental causes and then also having the foresight to think about, you know, this being the future of the tech of, you know, future technology of the industry uh, or one of the future technologies of the industry, and how can we start to develop that and, and get the ball rolling? Pretty excited to hear about this, this uh, renewable technology and, and its expansion. Are we ready to get to the interview? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. All right, let's roll the tape. So, Julia Ham, welcome to Accessible Now. Uh, it's such a pleasure and honor to have you on our show. So I was hoping you could get started off by telling us about the founding of SEPA and the relatively unknown story of how uh, your partnership with DOE really helped to get the U.S. grid-connected solar market off the ground. Sure, happy to do that. So this year, 2017, is actually the 25th anniversary of the organization. So back in 1992, 
Uh, there was a industry, an energy industry meeting happening where there were a group of folks chatting, talking about the fact that, you know, at some point in time that solar energy would probably become an important part of the nation's energy mix. But, but back in the early 90s, there really was no solar market um, here in the United States. And so it wasn't a big focus for a lot of the existing energy industry organizations. So the decision was made in 1992 to form this new organization, CEPA, which would really focus on helping the traditional electric utilities, the companies that uh, generate and deliver power to customers, helping them stay abreast of what was happening as solar technology developed. And so the first major program, as you mentioned, that SIPA was responsible for, where we really focused our efforts for the first eight or so years of the organization's history, was a public-private partnership between SIPA and the U.S. Department of Energy called, uh, the acronym was TEAMUP, which stood for Technology Experiences to Accelerate Markets in Utility Photovoltaics which was a mouthful. <laughs> and what that program did was provided funding to teams across the country to pay for the installation of solar equipment. And each team had to have a utility, a local utility partner. And most teams had a utility, a solar manufacturer, maybe a local nonprofit or environmental organization. And they all worked together to install solar in a variety of different applications. So some of the projects were solar on schools, some were on homes, others were on businesses, so a whole variety of different sizes and shapes of solar projects. And that funding through the Team Up program paid for a significant majority of the first 1,100 uh, solar electric power systems that were connected to the U.S. power grid. And so, you know, that really was, the, the program was really what jump-started the development of a true robust solar market here in the United States. You got started at SEPA pretty much straight out of college, if I'm not mistaken. Pretty close. Okay. So for some of, you know, maybe the young professionals uh, out there listening to us, can you talk a little bit about <clears throat> your work early on in SEPA, and then we can get to... Uh, you left the organization and you came back a few years later to lead a very different version of SEPA. But can you just talk a little bit to those early days and, and some of the work you were working on? Sure. Yes. So I actually originally started working with the organization just about a year out of college. Uh, my first year out of college, I moved down to D.C. for another job, and which I really turned out I didn't enjoy. So I started looking for other opportunities. And this was, I'm dating myself by telling the story, but this was long before the days of being able to go online and look at uh, <laughs> job opportunities. So I, I had to literally open up the newspaper, the Washington Post, and go to the classified ads and look at different job listings, which were very, very tiny. So really, you know, I applied for this position that all I knew was that it was an entry-level marketing position, and I got called for the interview. And when I went to the interview, I actually had no idea even 
what the company was, what the industry was. So really very different times in terms of it was impossible to do any any research in advance of going to the job interview on the company because I didn't even know who it was. So that's, that's a long, different story. Uh, times obviously have changed a lot. But so I started working with SIPA in a really a marketing and membership role and working to help um, get more electric utilities engaged in the organization. I was doing a lot of so a lot of outreach work. I was doing a lot of meeting planning. I was helping uh, write. We we had a newspaper that we published. So I was writing newspaper articles. So I had my hands in a lot of different things, uh, but all very much uh, initially with a, a marketing type focus. That sounds like a really good place to learn a lot of different uh, attributes of the industry from. So that's that's pretty interesting. I, I think a lot of young professionals, when they first uh, get into the you know workforce think you know what what am i actually learning from this and then a couple years down the road somebody asked them a question they're like oh i I guess i did learn quite a lot so so that's very interesting to hear (laughs) (laughs) that even your start was pretty similar in that regard uh so after the first couple years uh you left you saw you know sought out another opportunity and then you returned a few years later uh to lead sepa How, how did that come about and what was the organization like when you returned to it? Sure. So it, it is a little bit of a, a longer version of, of the story than I just told a minute ago. So essentially, when the organization was formed in 1992, the, the board of directors was formed, but they did not hire staff. They, they worked with a consulting company and put in place a services agreement for that consulting company to provide services and manage the organization. So when I started working with SIPA, it actually was not as an employee of SIPA. It was as as an employee of the consulting company. So fast forward to, as you said, time I had been working with SIPA a couple of years, but then I went off to explore another opportunity working in the energy efficiency space. Uh, While I was gone, the board of SIPA decided that it wanted to change its approach and um, hire staff directly and no longer uh, work through a management services contract. So the board had known me very well from from the time I had been working with them. And, uh, you know, honestly, the organization at that time was very, very small, didn't have a lot of resources, so they couldn't afford to go out and hire a seasoned executive to run the group. Uh, but they knew me, they trusted me, they had a lot of confidence in my ability to take things to the next level. So they they sought me out and said, you know, would you be willing to come back to SIPA as our first actual employee? Um, and, you know, and it was, it was certainly a risk for me personally. I had a great job uh, where I was, but you know, I think that that's one of my pieces of advice for young professionals is, you know, one of the best, in my experience, the best way to advance quickly is to take risks. And not every risk that you take is going to pay off. But if you don't take the risk, the professional risk, um, it, you know, it, it takes time to climb the ladder. Uh, and I was really fortunate in that I didn't have to do a lot of climbing. I was able to sort of jump from the bottom to the top of the ladder overnight because this opportunity emerged and, uh, you know, it was, it was a risk for me because like I said, I had a great job where I was, 
CFA as an organization at that point in time was uh, not in a good place financially. There were big question marks around whether the organization was sustainable in the long term. But I had enough confidence having worked with the organization in the past to, to see, I believe that there was potential for the organization to grow and to be sustainable. And I had enough confidence myself to, to know that, um, that I thought I could be able to do that. And so I took the risk. And uh, so in 2004, I came on board as the first executive director. And essentially, the organization, although it had been around for more than a decade, it really was a complete fresh start for us. We did have some members. Uh, but the management company owned everything. They owned all of the computers. They owned the office space. It was Everything was theirs. So essentially, when I came on board, it was as if I was starting up a new organization. Uh, but fortunately, we, had, we did have one current revenue stream that was already there that gave me the seed money to be able to grow it uh, when I, once I came in. So, Varun, that was pretty incredible of how she talked about the risks she took to begin her career. And I, I think it's great for, for people out there listening to hear the kind of leap she had to take to go from a job that was secure and obviously paying the bills to, to a job that would be a, a great opportunity, but she had didn't really know if the organization would even be viable. I think it's pretty pretty amazing how she took that that step. Yeah, Dylan, I mean, I was going to ask you what you think about that too, because I think both you and I are pretty young in our careers still, but we both have already taken on some risks. Obviously, when we first had the idea for this podcast a few years ago, you were in Chicago and I was on the West Coast, and now I'm in Chicago and you're on the West Coast. So... Uh, that speaks to some of the risks that we took for our careers too. But I thought it was such an interesting story because she talked about climbing the the ladder. takes It takes time and sometimes you can take a risk and like she said, kind of leapfrog ahead, but you may not have the stability that you had at your last job. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because I, I did a similar thing uh, about two years ago where I, I left a company where I had a good, a good position to start my own company with a business partner. And obviously I knew the model could work, but I, you know, we hadn't even tested the but model. But you've never done it before, Friday. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's been quite amazing the last two years, the, the kind of personal growth that I've gone through. And, uh, you know, if, if, no, if, if listeners don't know me, it's, it's in the chess world. You wouldn't think that you could make a career out of it. But, it, you know, if you're passionate about something, then you're going to you're going to enjoy what you're doing and you'll want to put more of your effort into it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, kind of like what Julia was talking about, what's really interesting about the fact that she took this risk and she made this leap was that, you know, back in the day before the age of Google, she didn't really know what this company did before she joined it. <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. She said she, she looked it up on classified. Yeah, and she just had like a paper. Do our listeners even know what newspapers are? <laughs> right. I mean, and she didn't even have necessarily like a background in the industry and she just grew there and then she went to her next job in energy efficiency and grew there and you know, and then she came back and as 
she's been one of the thought leaders of the industry for the last decade or two. So I just think like we, you know, we're of the age where we're young professionals and we know a lot of young, a lot of young professionals. And I think there's just such a cool story for the, you know, there for them to think about and, you know, think about when they're making life decisions about people like Julia Hamm, who've uh, taken risks, but also changed the world. So uh, let's uh, let's get back to the interview and, and see what Julia did next. So you mentioned that you had one revenue stream. Uh, can you elaborate on that and, and tell people a little bit about how that developed after you rejoined the organization? So the, the one revenue stream was membership dues. So that at that point in time, we had about 100 electric utilities that were members of SEPA, and they were paying membership dues. But, but all of those companies had gotten involved in the organization because of their involvement in the team-up program that I talked about earlier. And that program had since ended, and there was no longer any ongoing products services that SIPA was offering to provide value to those hundred members. So essentially they were they were paying dues, but they weren't really getting anything for it at that point in time when I came back. So I knew we had to act pretty quickly to begin to to providing value to the membership in order for them to be willing to continue to pay dues to the organization. And the, the first focus area for us when I came back was to start uh, what is now Solar Power International, which has become a very, very large trade show. So when I came back, I, I recognized that while there had been a number of solar conferences in the industry previous to 2004, they really were conferences, they weren't trade shows. But by 2004, the market had developed enough that I believed that it could support and sustain a reasonably sized trade show. So we developed Solar Power International, which, which was a combination of a trade show and a conference, and really focused on uh, that educational value for the membership. So, so Solar Power International SPI became a very has become and still is a very significant revenue stream for us that has allowed us to now provide a, you know dozens of different types of products and services to our members that we've been able to develop over the course of the years. So, Julia, uh, when you first joined SEPA, you were talking to there being about 1,100 installations grid-tight nationally, uh, and the fact that you Correct. guys had to subsidize that to a large extent how had the 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 scene for the solar market changed come 2004 2005 or some of the technological innovations you guys were seeing and how are the economics changing well but by 2004 the costs were still definitely very high uh, there's no doubt about that but they had come down enough and there was enough and, and really at that point in time California was the US solar market Mm -hmm. uh, so very policy driven. Enough policies had been implemented in California with the uh, California Solar Incentive Program and some other things that the solar market in California was really becoming quite robust. And so, uh, you know, there, there were there were other projects that were happening across the country, but the vast majority were, were happening in California. Um, technologically, uh, you know, I wouldn't. 
say other than the, the you know sort of the incremental improvements that drove cost reduction that there was necessarily a ton of technological change. Uh, efficiencies continue to have always incrementally improved every year, but solar technology for the most part has tended to be uh, not uh, advancements tend to not be big breakthrough advancements. They really tend to be much more incremental in nature. So. You know, fast forward a few years ahead, SIPA now has almost 600 members, which obviously speaks to the maturation of the solar market. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, there was always the early adopters like Germany, Japan, and locally states like California and New York. Uh, you briefly touched on some of the policy, you know, structures that help support uh, the growth in those markets. Could you speak a little bit more to, you know, different factors, even beyond policy, that that drove some of those early adopters and helped prop up that market early on in, in those uh, states and countries? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and let me just say, so CFA now has about 600 electric utility members, but we also have another 500 plus members who are uh, manufacturers, project developers, federal and state government agencies. So we actually have almost 1,100 members at this point. So quite substantial growth from the the 100 back in 2004 to 1,100 today. Um, So in terms of some of the early drivers, certainly a lot of it was environmentally driven. Those early adopters who were not price sensitive, for the most part, were people who really wanted to make a contribution from an environmental perspective and wanted to be able to do what they could uh, to deploy clean energy. And, you know, I think that goes as well for the, you know, the early policies in place certainly uh, had that as a driver as well. Some of those things have certainly changed over time. You know, as you look at data uh, from uh, market surveys about why customers are choosing to go solar today versus the early 90s, the picture has changed quite drastically. There certainly are many people who make the decision to go solar for environmental reasons, but the majority of people today are choosing to go solar because it is a cost-effective option for them. So that, that certainly was not the case when we when we go back and look at the early 2000s. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's a great point. Um, could you speak to how cost competitive uh, solar is today, both at the utility, utility scale solar uh, model and also distributed? There's there's a lot of business innovation around the distributed side. Uh, could you speak to a little bit about uh, both of those markets? Yeah. Yeah. So large scale solar projects often referred to as solar farms or solar power plants are extremely cost-effective relative to other electricity-generating resources. So in many, and, 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 you know, in different parts of the country, there there are a lot of different factors that influence the the relative cost-effectiveness of one resource versus another. But generally, you know, in, in most parts, or many, many parts of the country today, large solar power plants, are, are at or below uh, the cost of most, of pretty much any other generating resource. 
So they're very competitive with traditional resources uh, that typically have been the power grid. Uh, roof distributed solar, usually when we're talking about distributed solar, we're, we're typically talking about rooftop solar on homes and businesses. Uh, rooftop solar does tend to be much more expensive than the large solar power plants, uh, simply for, uh, you know, economies of scale reasons and labor costs, a lot of things go into that. Uh, but there are there have been, as you mentioned, innovations and in financing options that make rooftop solar very affordable for customers in certain states, as well as policy drivers and decisions. So there are um, options now for customers to be able to either lease solar panels for their roof, so there's no cost up front, uh, but there are also a lot of emerging loan products where you can own the solar system on your roof and, and you have a loan to do that in a very cost-effective way. Uh, on the policy front, there are, depending on the states, some states still have incentive programs to help cover parts of the cost. Uh, there are also, there's also a very common policy called net energy metering. Um, that allows you to sell excess electricity that you're generating from your own roof back to the electric utility at the same rate at which they sell you the power. Um, although that is a very controversial topic in the industry uh, for a lot of uh, very complex reasons. But but yeah, so, so the cost is for both large plants and rooftop solar has come down significantly, is very affordable in most places. Um, and so that is a big part of the reason why we're seeing the industry flourish so much at this point. Thank you. That was that was great information. Uh, as far as the grid goes, what are some of the different implications of uh, utility scale versus distributed uh, at a high level? So uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to talk about without getting too, too, too in the weeds. <laughs> sure, uh, sure. But, you know, some of the challenges, you know, I, most people... Uh, don't really understand much about how their electricity is generated and delivered. And simply, you walk into your house and you flip the light switch and you expect the power is going to come on. But but it is actually a very complex system and takes a lot to manage that system, both um, sort of at the bulk power level, but also sort of at the local distribution level. So some of the, some of the challenges or things people are thinking about today are... Uh, in terms of, um, there are certain places on the physical electric grid where there is what they, they call congestion, uh, essentially electricity congestion, where um, or other places where there are con other constraints or challenges with the physical system, um, where in one case, it might be very beneficial to add a solar system at that spot on the grid. And in another place, could even be on the other side of the same neighborhood, it could actually be problematic to add a solar system to the grid. And so there's this locational factor uh, that historically hasn't been an issue, but as we see more and more and more solar integrated into the electric grid, uh, it becomes even more important to think about where the next system is added. 
And so, you know, that begins to create challenges, especially for consumers, for customers, for people who own their homes who want to install install solar, because uh, there then does become a question about what we call cost allocation. And if 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 your if everyone in your neighborhood except you has already installed solar, and it's been fine and it hasn't caused a problem on the grid, but it's gotten to a point where if you put solar on your house, it's going to cause the electric utility to have to upgrade a very expensive piece of equipment, who should have to pay for that? Should it be you because you're the person who is putting on that last system that's actually the one triggering the need for the upgrade? Should that cost somehow be allocated across every every single customer that uses the system? Should it be allocated only across customers who have solar systems? You know, all of these are... Uh, policy issues, their business model questions, uh, and it is, it is a very complex and complicated um, equation that, and, and this locational piece is, is just one of many, uh, but I think that that's something where, you know, as an organization, we're always trying to think about the balance of value to an individual homeowner or customer versus value to the entire system or the entire group of customers who are utilizing a specific electric grid. And those things do have to be balanced. Uh, They are sometimes in conflict with one another. Yeah, I I think you did an amazing job of explaining a really complex subject in a a pretty concise manner. I I think a lot of people don't think about you know, in a sense, like the grid having congestion, almost like traffic, you know, but I think for most people, that's just something out of sight, out of mind. Wow, Varun, that was a lot of information and a lot of good stuff, but let's unpack it because, you know, some of that stuff may have gone over the head of the untrained ear. Yeah, absolutely, Dylan. I I know, uh, I mean, Julia did an absolutely wonderful job because as complex as that sounded, that was just the tip of the iceberg, you know? There's just so much going on. But I totally understand that for people, you know, including you that aren't part of the industry, this all probably, you're hearing for the first time, it sounds pretty, pretty complicated. So uh, feel free to just ask me any questions you have and we'll take it from there. Yeah, first let's let's start with talking about the early adopters because I find that kind of interesting and the reasons for um, adopting solar. Um, So she was basically saying that a lot of them were adopting it for mostly environmental reasons um, because uh, what was was the main reason for that? Was it because the cost was so high, Varun? Yeah, so before the industry, you know, started to mature, you know, solar, like I'd mentioned in the introduction, was used primarily for niche applications. So it really hadn't hit that, you know, uh, utilities of scale kind of cost curve to drop the production costs. So it was pretty expensive, you know, still kind of emerging technology. Wait, uh, hold on, slow down. Uh, the cost curve, what do you mean by that? You know, just like anything that hits that manufacturing, once you start manufacturing a lot of anything, the cost of that good starts to fall, right? Because you get uh, the utilities of mass production behind it. 
So. Oh, okay. So you're so you're talking about breaking it down to basic economics. Yeah, just here. basic so. economics, right? This is like a yeah, a high tech, you know, emerging technology that was used for niche applications where there weren't other choices. So, it was, or it was just too expensive to get conventional uh, power production means to those locations. So, you right. know, and, and so there was no real incentive for people to buy it other than environmental reasons. But that's changed, right? Since the price has dropped, right? Then now, now the actual price of, of solar is an incentive itself, right? Yeah. And, you know, so with that, so also just going back to the early adopters really quickly, as I mentioned before, there was part of it being that primarily environmental reasons especially for individuals like say somebody in california who bought a really expensive solar system 20 years ago for that individual more than likely unless they were a researcher that was all for environmental reasons right but there were industry of you know factions that invested in the technology because they saw the potential of it as a disruptive technology even 20 or 30 years ago so it's that combination that kind of maybe gave birth to the american solar industry but today it's very different so like julia said there's two you know primary forms of solar today there's the large solar farms or utility scale solar and those those are like the the big you know, when I was driving through the desert, going to Vegas from from LA, and there's like these giant mirrors out, like reflecting light from the kind of it, it, you know amplifying the light. Actually, so so that's a different technology. Uh, we'll oh. co- yeah, that that is solar oh. thermal technology. We're talking about photovoltaics right now. We'll have another episode focused on solar thermal because oh, it has that's some a totally different type. Yeah, so you know, solar thermal wow. is actually generating you know steam powered power, but it's just oh. using concentrated heat from the sun. This well, that's is kind of interesting. I thought I thought that they were actually concentrating it onto the voltaic cell. No, 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 no. That's a different technology. So we'll get into that in a different episode. But photovoltaics, you know, you can have large systems uh, that are that you know cover an acre or two, or or you know even like a lot more than that of land. So you can have them in urban settings even, or you could have them in more you know remote settings. But essentially, the purpose of those systems are to produce power for the grid. So I see. And who are who, who owns those ones? Usually, the power company. Or? There's there's a variety of, of people that could own those things, and that really just differs from state to state. Uh, but it could either be that they're selling the power right to the utility, or that the utility owns the actual physical assets and is using that as part of its uh, production mix. Uh, I but, see, I see. Right. And, the and diff- that's utility scale, right? That's utility scale. So that's a lot cheaper okay. because, you know, the level of, you know, technical staff that you can have installing those systems, just the sheer power that you're generating from them, right, in one cohesive system is going to give you a much better return on investment than... Because when you have a smaller system, you still need to install it properly. You need to tie it to the grid. There's all these individual cost components that your return on investment from the power being produced is, you know, going back to basic economics again, right? 
So mm-hmm. uh, if you were to build something in your garage versus build it in a production facility at mass scale, you know, basic economics tells us about the, the differences uh, in, in the cost effectiveness of those two approaches, right? We've seen it time and time again. It's the same thing with solar in many ways. There's a lot of complexities around how you can optimize the systems as well that go into it. But, you know, largely speaking, that that's the primary difference right there. Yeah, I the, even have the other distributed sources, like I'm guessing these are from individuals, right? Yeah, and so that's where the locational value of solar comes into play. And the other part of that is, you know, there are individuals that want to generate power from solar. But then like Julia said also, uh, so one of the things I was just about to get to is with utility scale solar, the primary objective is to provide power to the marketplace, the existing marketplace uh, at a cost competitive price with traditional generation. With distributed solar, the, the actual motivation is different, right? You're trying to defer the price you already pay for your power. Right, right. I'm trying to harvest my own solar power, right? Right, exactly. So you're trying to defer what you would pay for that equivalent power to the utility company, which obviously has a lot of, you know, apart from just the cost of producing the power, it's the cost of maintaining the power grid. It's a markup of the utility company for all different kinds of factors. So you're bypassing all of that when you produce your own power. So it's a different motivation. Uh, And then on top of that, there is a lot of locational value to what are called distributed energy resources or DERs, of which solar is probably one of the most prolific. Uh, So just to give you a high level number, because I don't want to get too in the weeds here for our listeners, the actual electricity grid that connects you know, that goes to all of our homes uh, and all of our neighborhoods, which obviously everybody in the United States has seen. Uh, You know, rule of thumb on that is it costs a million dollars a mile to build out that utility grid. So just think about... Can you you, uh, tell me how many zeros that was? It's a million dollars a mile. So... Just think about how many miles of grid there are in this country alone. Right. So, you know, I mean, and now in in the developing world, they're kind of looking at things like solar as the same way that they did at, you know, cellular phones 10 years ago. They're just leapfrogging the old infrastructure and just going for the new technology. I mean, that's that's a you know, there's a lot of complexity there. It's at this point not as reliable as a traditional grid, uh, which is a big part of the value that the grid brings is reliability. But even that is changing because in the future, things like that can be vulnerable to things like cyber attacks. So there's just a lot of complexity there. Um, But, you know, distributed energy resources are very valuable. They they democratize power production and they have localized value as well. So so that's kind of oh, man. the difference. Yeah, there's pretty, a lot. There's a lot going on like there. So much there. Right. And and uh, I'm I'm just I'm just pretty excited that I can even hear all this because I understand it from a basic level, but you, you know to hear an in depth take on it 
because obviously I use power every day, but yeah, we know, all do. I'm not always thinking about where it's coming from. And then the fact that she said you could even have congestion in, in the solar power or even the, I mean, general power grid. Uh, well, that's just kind of mind blowing. You know, I get stuck in, in congestion all the time in Los Angeles, but yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think my, my, uh, <laughs> my electricity think, coming through the wires would get congested. Think about the power grid, like the LA highway system on steroids, Dylan. <laughs> There's that much going on there. Um, oh man. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I'm I'm excited to hear the rest of this. Should we Should we jump back in and and uh, have Julia Ham take us out? Yeah, yeah. Julia Ham's gonna start talking about some of the uh, the emerging practices and technologies that SIPA is looking at and other people are looking at to help uh, hopefully solve a lot of these complexities and uh, get us a clean power system for the future. All right. No more congestion. Yeah. <laughs> So SIPA has been thinking a lot about this, and, and you guys have actually uh, expanded your scope of work and mission to kind of encompass these complexities. Can you speak about that transition and some of the new technologies and approaches you guys are now focusing on? Absolutely. So until, uh, until April of 2016, uh, we, were, we were actually called the Solar Electric Power Association. But, but last year, we changed our name to the Smart Electric Power Alliance and expanded our mission to include other resources beyond just solar. Solar is still a very important part of the work that we do, but, but other things are now included. And the reason for that is because if you think about it in the most simplest terms, too much of any one thing is probably a bad thing, right? So it, it, is all, it goes back to balance. We want there to be as much solar on the electric grid as the grid can possibly take without causing, you know, overwhelming, unbearable costs to the system or technical challenges. In order to be able to allow solar to continue to grow, there are other resources that need to be deployed on the grid to help balance it out. So there are things um, like energy efficiency programs. Um, electric vehicles can be used in a way in a way in which they actually can serve as batteries that can can take in excess power from the grid at certain times of day. Um, energy storage, batter, actual batteries, um, sort of at the whether it's at a home or a business or at a substation for a utility. Energy storage is an important part of that equation. So we've expanded our scope to really be about the transition that's happening within the energy sector driven by the emergence and adoption of new technology. And we're focused on making sure that that transition is done in a smart way. We Things are going to be messy and chaotic, but we believe if, that we're, if we're focused on a variety of things, including how all of these different new technologies and resources can be deployed in parallel and in a coordinated fashion, that ultimately this transition will be much smoother and there will be fewer losers in the equation uh, at the end of the day. So uh, as as somebody who also works in the energy sector, I I know you're well aware of how siloed uh, large institutions within the energy sector tend to get. 
Uh, can you speak a little bit about how your culture has started to change uh, and and how you feel that could be something that the energy sector at large can start to learn from as we transition to this new energy future? So that's, that's a great point. I mean, one of the things, especially within uh, using electric utilities as an example, but, but the siloing certainly exists in many other places across the industry. But with electric utilities, they, they often historically have had different teams of people. They've had a team of people or a person or how many of people focused on developing solar offerings to their customers. And they've had a separate team of people with a separate budget focused on developing energy efficiency programs. And then a separate team of people focused on energy storage or whatever, whatever the resource might be. Um, and, you know, ultimately, that, that, that was it's a great start. But in order to really think about this holistic approach, we do have to break down those silos and really get to what is it that customers want. Not all customers want the same thing. There might be one customer who cares most about price. They want the lowest monthly bill than they can possibly have. There might be another customer that, for example, let's say it could be a manufacturing facility. They might care most about the highest possible degree of reliability because even a 15-second power blip could cause them millions of dollars of losses because their equipment turns off and then they have to restart it and they lose production time. So different customers care about different... There might, and then let's throw in a third example. There might be another customer that cares most about how green, how clean their electricity supply is. And so our belief is that if we really understand, it can get to a point where we understand what it is that each customer truly cares most about then the industry should be providing them with a offering that delivers what they're looking for. And in most cases, in order to meet that customer's interest, it's not going to be a single technology or a single resource that's going to do that for the customer. It's probably going to be a combination of things. So, you know, we're really looking to get to a point where utilities and other service providers are able to go to a customer and say, okay, you care most about the highest degree of reliability possible. Here's this package, and you might not even care what's in the package, but here's this package that's going to result in improving your reliability by X percent, and here's what it's going to cost you. Uh, Rather than going to them and saying, well, you know, we could offer you this battery system, which might get you part of the way there, but you know, we, we haven't sort of put things together in order to optimize for what you're looking for. Yeah, so it's kind of that combination of customer choice and customer engagement and trying to hit that kind of sweet spot between the two. Like, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, and, some, and some, some customers, I think that, is, you know, the customer engagement piece is an important one. Some different, again, all customers are not the same. Some customers are going to want to be highly engaged in their own electricity production and consumption. So you're going to have customers who want an app on their phone and every day are going to want to go on and tweak what's going on in their house with their power usage. But there are always going to be other customers that have no interest. They just want the lights to come on and they want the refrigerator to be cold and they don't want to ever have to deal with it. So you know, we have to acknowledge that the the 
ultimate objective is not to have every customer stop, you know, completely engaged in their electricity because some customers don't want to be engaged and mm-hmm. that's okay. But we have to have the ability for those who do want to be engaged to do so. If you could, you know, with broad strokes, paint a picture for us, and I know SEPA's done this a little bit with its 51st state initiative. Uh, about what SEPA envisions as kind of the future of the energy uh, you know, market, energy as a service, things like that. Uh, can you just speak to uh, briefly, I know it's a very complex subject matter, but <laughs> kind of paint a picture for our audience of, of what the future of energy could be like. Well, you know, I, I think that most important is that we continue to have all of the things that we've always wanted from our electricity, which is that it's safe, it's affordable for the most part, and it's reliable, but that we are successfully able to layer on top of that, that it is clean, um, and that customers are able to have more options and engage if they want to. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's the, that's the simplest version of it, that the industry has been phenomenal. It's safe, affordable, reliable electricity for 100 plus years. And now what we're working on is layering on top that that clean piece of it. So we have some recurring questions that are fun that we're asking all of our guests. Uh, and the first one uh, was, if you had a dream team of one scientist, one policymaker and one educator, who would be on your team? a long time to, to figure out my answer, but ultimately I decided on for my scientist, I'm going to go with Carl Sagan because I've always been fascinated by the universe and outer space and all of these things I don't understand. Um, and he also has a connection to Cornell where I went. So I'm going to pick Carl Sagan for my, for my scientist. For my policymaker, I decided to go with, well, I couldn't decide between policymaker and politician and whether there was a difference between the two, but I went with, I'm going to go with Arnold Schwarzenegger just because uh, he's an interesting character, but he obviously, you know, I think he did a lot of really great things for the environment in California. Uh, I think is, you know, just a really interesting person all around, but, but also really understands uh, the issues that we're dealing with. And then last but not least, for my educator, I decided to go with my high school English teacher uh, because I thought we needed, I needed to round out my team with a woman. Um, and I really respected my high school English teacher. She was a really tough lady, uh, but she was very good at what she did. She taught me a lot. And uh, you know, I think my, my writing skills are much stronger thanks to her. So I think those three in combination would be a pretty fun dream team. That's a great team. I <clears throat> did not expect Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> well, I've, I've met him a couple times, and I just think it would it would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, feel like a combo: Carl Sagan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, probably balance each other out pretty well. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Julia, thank you so much for taking the time with us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely happy to do it. That is a wrap, everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us for the first episode of Accessible Now. We really hope you'll continue to be part of our journey. I'd like to give a huge thanks to Julia Hamm for being such an amazing resource and for teaching us so much about solar power. 
I'd also like to give a huge shout out to Stefano Saravella, our sound engineer and original music creator. We wouldn't have been able to do this without him. Keep the conversation going and we will see you guys next time. Thank you.